Jessica Wilson is a co-creator of the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge that went viral in 2020. She is a clinical dietitian, consultant, and author whose experiences navigating the dietetic fields as a Black. Queer dietitian have been featured on public radio shows and in print media, including the New York Times, Bustle, and Cronkite News. Jessica has worked as a clinical dietitian since 2007 and is acutely aware of how both the public health and medical framing of healthy eating and obesity has contributed to disordered eating and self-blame. Jessica co-hosted my Black Body podcast, which changed the conversation about who has eating disorders and how treatment fails so many people. Her book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, was published on February 7, 2023. And we can't wait to talk all about it today on CTN with J.D. Fuller. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy with the release of your book. No, it's great. Thanks for the invitation. Also, I must thank you for your grace and flexibility with all of my craziness and scheduling. Sometimes that ADHD gets the best of me and the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand is doing. So I appreciate your flexibility. It means a lot to me. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fine. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. So the interview may seem a little choppy because I kind of go from one part of you to the other part of you because you're pretty interesting, I have to say. So let's start with a little bit about your background. What influenced you growing up and what would you say helped develop your self-image? There's so many influences we have growing up. There's just so many. And, and I'm wondering, is there anything that stands out that really sort of dominated for you growing up? Yeah, I'd say there's a few things. One, I was a chubby kid growing up. And so I was sent to a dietitian myself when I was six. And wait, then, wait, wait. Yeah. six? Yep. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And with the new Academy, American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines, I don't know if you saw that, they're going to start sending kids as young as three for behavioral basically dieting now. Mm -hmm. is it is. I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to pose judgment, but that, that, that caught me off guard. I'm not going to lie. Oh, it's terrible. And it was bad <laughs> for me. Like, who would, why are you talking to a six-year-old? So basically it was bad. And then afterwards, I was hyper aware of like food and body stuff as a child. And that was not great for development. But then in, I think it was 10, either, but like after fourth grade or something, I ended up just playing a lot more because we were in a safer neighborhood and I was older and was out all day, every day, and ended up just naturally as a kid, like my weight fluctuated. And at that point, I lost weight and I got all this weird positive feedback from something that I had no hand in at all. So like at six and at 10, there was these very defining, like you need to, you know, shrink your body type of moments to get like positive feedback. And it was gross then. It's gross to think about now. So like, and because I was the only or one of like three black kids at a white school, I was already hyper aware. So I was going to become a therapist. But then somebody said, oh, you can become a dietitian and it's easy to get a job. It was like <laughs> uh, people have always been talking to me about food. So sure, let me do that. And then so that was like a lot of my self-image growing up, which wasn't that great. I mean, I was pretty insulated from having or developing an eating disorder because I was really socially involved and that was affirming. And so I had some positive reinforcements there. But then going through school, I became really skeptical 
they were teaching us like what black people ate. And it's like, I'm here. And I was the only black student. Everybody was white except for like this misfit group that I was in of folks of color and like one chubby girl. So it was basically all of us who we were being taught about ourselves. It was wild. Yeah. So that was when I started to take more of a critical lens at the dietetics field. Okay, slow down. This is a lot. Okay, so <laughs> you you came out the gate strong, Jessica. I got to tell you. Okay, the dietitian at six that that yeah. you can yeah. see it's it's I'm challenged to even have that conversation because it doesn't make any sense to me. And then growing up in white spaces and being told all or being shown all that is wrong yeah. with you that is stigmatizing in and of itself. And then mm-hmm. I'm curious about the idea of becoming a therapist. Was that because of that childhood experience that was so challenging for you? No, I've always just really liked talking to people. And before you really know what a job is, you just think therapists talk all day. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm well, glad I did not become it's not, a therapist. It's not far from the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's true. You do talk all day. And then as a dietitian, I was like, I can just talk about food all day. So, I mean, both were, both were great. Okay. And then, you know, the compliment, the the size compliments, I, I find yeah. that very fascinating. I have experienced that as well. I'm challenged because there there is a way where I physically feel better in my weight. I'm challenged by how excited white bodies get when there is weight loss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating. You know, I it went is. to a friend's a wedding point. And the excitement over my size was throwing me off. Uh, you know, I was mm-hmm. one of the black people there. I cannot tell you how many compliments I got about my size, how great I looked in my size. It stood out so much. So when you said that, that really brought that image up for me. But at such a young age, I mean, that's so challenging. Yeah, and gross. Like, why are you talking about 10-year-olds' bodies and like in the first place? Like, can't you just let kids place. be kids? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. And then the idea of being in white spaces and the educational piece, that's a whole, if you've ever seen my podcast, we spend lots of time on the craziness of how mm-hmm. that plays out. So you've talked a lot about your health journey on your social media. And oh, yeah. I want to try to put some of the pieces together because there's an intersection of who you are. Were there any significant health concerns early on that also helped to sort of guide your interest in the area of, of being a dietitian? I wouldn't say health concerns. I didn't ever see my epilepsy that developed age 12. I didn't really see the connection to like healthcare until I was much older and seeing mm-hmm. how people were convinced that if you just like meditate or yoga, you're, then you can get out of any chronic illness and like taking medication was bad for you and all of this stuff. And then I was like, oh, this, this is not the way to, to do things. Yeah. What was that like for you receiving that diagnosis at, at 12? I mean, that had to be life-changing in and of itself. Yeah. And at 12 slash 13, you know, people started getting like their, well, thinking about getting their learner's permit, driver's permit, and like that mm. all of a sudden, yeah, it was like an automatic never going to happen. Mm. And, you know, having to do a bunch of like MRIs and EEGs as still a kid and preteen, that's really heavy for a kid. That's to a drama. Yeah, to be going through. That's absolutely, that's traumatic. And there is a level of grief that happens oh, yeah. early on at age when you start experiencing those kinds of nevers. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's overwhelming. 
Well, I don't know how, how progressive it was, but did they think about it in terms of through a dietetic lens? I mean, I know the meditation, emotional relaxation piece, but they, they never brought that in as a variable. No, no. Okay. I get, okay. I get asked like if I ever lost consciousness or that stuff, but never food related questions. And then later on, well, first of all, where did you grow up? Have you been in Sacramento your whole life? I grew up in Sacramento. I was then in Oregon for school and work and then came back to Oakland and back to Sacramento. (laughs) Full circle. And then, so after you realized you had epilepsy and your life had to change significantly, were you managing that yourself? Were you being taught to manage it yourself? Were your parents or parents still trying to manage it? Because that's also, I mean, traumatizing for them to find out something else has to be considered as a part of your life. I was on and I have been on medication for 30 years. So there was times where, you know, because I was still developing and my brain was still developing, like one medication would work and then it wouldn't. And then I'd go on another one. I had one that was causing far more seizures, but we just thought they weren't well controlled, but it was that medication. So it was just back and forth and up and down and things were confusing in high school and that just made it. Oh my God. I, yeah. I, I can't even that, that's incredible all that you've gone through. And then you said on social media that you discovered neurodivergence. As- <laughs> like months ago. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? I know. Oh, and it made so much more sense. I'm so easily distracted, but you know, because I have an excitable brain, apparently that occurs between seizures, not just during the seizure. Which I still have. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's why I'm so, yeah, easily distracted by like some bright and shiny object or like something new. Yes. I have a bunch of projects in my wake that I have to go back like at the end of the day, like clean up because just move on to the next thing because the next thing was exciting. Right. Right. That's fascinating. And there is a level of, well, at least historically, a level level of, um, late diagnoses of neurodivergence mm. for females in general. But but what, was it a doctor who said, hey, like, well, how did it come about? Or you put the pieces together yourself? Literally social media. I follow a lot of neurodivergent folks on social media because my spouse has late, very late diagnosed autism. And I was, you know, just on these pages generally. Mm. And then it was like a list. It, it was really just literally a list of, you know, conditions that, you know, create neurodivergence. And then that started like the Google rabbit hole. I was like, how has nobody said anything about this to me in the last 30 years? Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate how much you share of yourself and your journey on social media. It's very interesting and insightful. When you think about the various parts of yourself and how you identify, is there one part of your intersectionality that has guided you more significantly than the other? It's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. I would say it just depends on the environment for me because I've been and lived in so many spaces and navigated so many spaces when I was in Oregon, right? (laughs) The only black person in the state. It was wild. Like my blackness was by far my most salient identity. And a lot of the work that I was doing was around that work. And then in the Bay Area, it was more working towards like fat liberation because there were black folks there, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, it's really 
depended on where my liberation work has been focused. Okay, that's fascinating. And so it's not based, like, you know, when I think about that question for myself, I think about it's been periods in my life where, mm. you know, different parts of my intersectionality has le- led me and, and based in the aging process. So it is, it's interesting that it's more regional for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so what, what has that taught you? What has it taught you that this, this sort of regionality to your intersectionality? It's a lot of alities in one question. They said that was a good question. I think for me, it's the points of reflection that I get in like my quiet brain time and mm. looking at spaces and what's missing and how can I help fill those spaces? Because I'm already thinking about the you know gaps anyway, just because I'm a Capricorn, maybe who but like how can I direct that energy is really where it is because I have so much already building, but like where yeah, where can I put that in a you know yeah. I love that. I love that. That that's powerful. Okay, so now you are definitely a truth finder. And I'm really into truth finders these days. I used to claim to be so headstrong about truth seekers, but I'm really on the finders now, the ones who really absolutely discover. You know, they're not just seeking it, but they're they're their passion is to find it. And I definitely put you in that category. And so it makes me want to know more about your passion. What was your passion and purpose in in writing this book? I do a lot of good work one-on-one with people. It's great to see the person in front of me, the one individual in front of me. And sometimes there's, you know, like getting to hear them talking to their friends, but never have I been able to reach more than like 10 people at a point in time, depending on who's on my caseload. So I also think that people should have access to that kind of, you know, thinking and clinical experience. So. It was, you know, if I could sell a hundred books, I'd be super happy about that. That's how the book came about. That's amazing. That is amazing. So in general, you have said that black, let me try to get this right. Black women's body stories have been written by whiteness. That's, that's deep. How do you think this shows up in relationship with ourselves and with each other? Yeah, I'll start with each other first. I think that's one of the more complex pieces And I think that comes out in both in how we care for each other, but also sometimes how we police each other. And like that policing, again, is really just a different form of care, but it gets complicated. So like with respectability, politics, it could be, you know, honestly, like shaming other black women for how they, you know, dress or speak or talk. But really what that is, is like trying to protect them from the impacts of white supremacy and so this like complicated relationship of back and forth, and we do that with bodies as well, how we talk to ourselves and each other. So that's like both, how does it impact us and how does it impact our relationships and, you know, how we're so often just trying to survive and helping those of us ar- around us survive white supremacy as well. And sometimes for our own bodies, that looks like shrinking ourselves in a society that tells us we're too much. So that's that just brought up a couple of things for me. And one is when I have talked about black bodies who have subscribed to the excessive plastic surgery and mm-hmm. how it saddens me because it feels like that's through the lens of white supremacy as well. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, historically our shapely bodies and not mine, I got left out of that, but historically <laughs> shapely 
bodies have been something that's been ridiculed and criticized so much. And now that, you know, white supremacy has gotten a hold of it, it's almost as if it appears or presents itself as black bodies feeling like we have to do more to Mm -hmm. show that we are the originators. And while I want to bring that out, I I, I really want it to not sound like a critique and more like a concern. Yeah. Isn't that the tricky part? The complexity Mm -hmm. there? Yes. Because really, we don't want people, you know, ripping apart parts of their body and putting them in other places. But (laughs) still, because I care for you. But at the same time, it's like, I know what's happening here and why you feel called to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the other part of that is the shrinking ourselves while trying to emotionally stay strong because the power that we've been led to believe we have as black women has always been used against us. And so you're just making me think of how that physical shrinkage or the ideal of physical shrinkage, how that plays into the emotional bigness that we combat all the time. You know, this idea that strong black women and that we can do all and carry all. Yeah. I'm wondering how that contraindication manifests internally. It must look like, you know, a San Francisco highway or an LA freeway. (laughs) Um, Atlanta traffic. The too much yet not enough is yeah, yeah, definitely what I think about hyper visible, invisible at the same time. And just like, there's no way of winning. And so the examples that I typically give are black folks in predominantly white spaces. And as you you know, some black women find if their body, you know, is smaller or more conforming to white, like body norms that they're treated Mm -hmm. better. And so, yeah, like big still being, you know, hyper visible, but like shrinking can be a little bit more palatable to white people around, it's not great. So that ties into the hair for me. Oh, right. Right. Right? So the shrinkage. And so now that we've gone bigger and bolder with our hair, how that doesn't fit in and why Mm -hmm. it's being released so regularly. Yeah, that's interesting. It's just yet another layer and and complexity, Mm -hmm. as you said. So you've talked about openly about the lies we have been told to believe as black-bodied women. And it's through the lens of white supremacy. Can you language that a little bit more, not just the shrinkage, but is there anything else specifically about that narrative that you'd like to correct? The lights we've been told, some of them, I mean, yeah, so many, you know? <laughs> that our bodies are a problem is one that we get all the time. I think about our body, you know, when we present at the doctor's office, you know, specifically that like everything about our body is a problem because we are who we are we're more likely to get heart disease we're more like we're just told like all of these things from an early age that we're at risk i'm putting air quotes at risk of because we're black you're telling us from very young age that we need to be worried about our eminent demise but that's not because of me it's because of (laughs) medical racism it's about white supremacy it's about trauma and toxic stress so like those are the things, it's not me and my body that are the problem here. So that's some pathologizing and problematizing of bodies. So, yeah. You know, I I remember that happening, that idea that like being given the weight I needed to get down to. Mm -hmm. And and now think about it in retrospect, like, what was that based in? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You yeah. know, how did that how did that come about? And how many thick women are told that they're obese? Yeah. Not just 
could lose a few pounds, but obese, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it sounds so, I mean, I think using the word obese is a challenge anyway, but to be told that because your body shape is differently is particularly upsetting. Yeah. I think you about know, one client. Yeah. All the time. She was a grad student and was one of the 10 people who had a plot at the campus student farm. She spent her weekends making bread and homemade yogurt and doing like all of these things, but had a random, you know, doctor appointment where she was told, you know, that she was obese and needed to lose weight. And was just so confused. Like, what changes do I need to make and all of these things in her vegetarian diet? And I had like no note on, on it, but all of a sudden she was looking at herself as you know sick at her whole you know she looked at her whole family that looked like her and she was like this is just a problem for all of us and I was like yesterday this wasn't a problem and now today because of that doctor appointment it's a problem and only based on a number and she was fine but probably will never think that she is again so you're making me dig in deep here and I am looking at the time and I really want to turn this into two episodes because I have so much more to say to you. Is that okay? okay. That's fine. <laughs> and I appreciate it so much. Please let everybody know where they can find you. What are your social media handles? Where can they buy your book right away? Just put that out there. Book is available on all major retailers online, on audiobook and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm on Instagram at jessicawilson.msrd. And if you're on TikTok, you can look at me try and struggle over there. <laughs> I am at by Jessica Wilson on TikTok. So, what about your website? Ah, my website, uh, jessicawilsonrd.com. And last on Twitter, at Jessica Wilson RD. Yeah. Again, thank you so much. I appreciate your awesomeness, uh, the conversations that we had. I really do appreciate it. And I hope it makes a difference in people's lives. And I believe it will. Your questions were great. Thanks so much for having me. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.